Peace to you. Welcome to The Naked Truth. Thank you for joining me. We're going to pick up in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 23. Uh, and we're at verse 1 and this is like the penultimate, I think is the word for it. Verse before the end of the book. So if, without further ado, let's begin with verse 1. Now these are the words the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. So, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the same David, and these words being attributed to David as his last words. Um, so, the book of Psalms, which he's accredited, which he's credited with um, writing, um, I don't know. It, how, it seems to me like maybe that's the literary devices at work in the two um, that's making him the author of all those great psalms and only one psalm be actually in um, the sort of his life story of him in Second Samuel here. But I mean, it's no big deal. It's a it's probably a good thing. One more sign for us to know of how. Samuel is one person, the person who the book is named for. David is another person who the one the book is ultimately about. Um, and the versions um, of his words and the book of Psalms being attributed to him is a whole other thing that's other than this last chapter that we just read um, doesn't really point to um, tie the two together. Um, but the psalm really, really is very representative of what the psalms say in the book of Psalms. So it's really easy to believe that David did write them or a lot of them. So anyway, verse two, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. So now here, David is saying that um, it's the spirit of the Lord, the entity he's identifying as the Lord in this verse, Lord in English all capital letters here in the scripture is being translated from the word or name, if you prefer, Jehovah. Um, and, you know, that's just my best pronunciation of it. Um, so that's who he's naming as his God in this verse here. Um, and if you've read with me before, and, you know, only a few of you do, then you already know what I mean by that. The Lord doesn't always say Lord sometimes. Even recently, we saw where I think it was the word God was being translated from the word or entity known as L, at least in one verse that we read recently. So um, just something to keep in mind there. Uh, but he's saying it's the spirit and in plain English, we just say God uh, or the Lord, since that's who he's identifying the entity important to him so that he's worshiping in this moment. The, with capital S spirit. So he's saying the spirit of the entity Jehovah is who he's praying to as his God is um, the word of God is was on his tongue saying that he is a, and a prophet basically is what he's saying. Verse three, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over man must be just ruling in the fear of God. So now he's saying that God spoke to him and that's the message that God brought to him on the character of someone in charge of the people. 
um, especially the congregation of the Israelites in this time. And so, like I've said before, did God Almighty actually say that to him? If maybe, or is it the God uh, that he's just worshiping as his God that said it to him? Most likely. Um, I say that because like we read in um, the New Testament, that's not the same way that God is addressed in the New Testament, saying that uh, we read there in the Gospels that um, no one has heard, seen God's form, no one's heard God's voice at any time in some cases in those scriptures. And as Christians, that lets us know this part of the Bible is not a Christian thought. It may go into the Christian narrative. Clearly it does. It's David and it's the Psalms and it's Second Samuel. It's three different um, parts being tied in together. But that doesn't mean that they're the gospel truth of what happened in the same way that no matter what somebody's faith is, when something miraculous happens, that doesn't mean that's God affirming the person's faith. It just means that's how God showed up in that person's life. And whether that's the God in the Bible or God Almighty and two separate entities all together or not, it's still significant in the fact that that's just how that person will identify God in their lives, whether that's God Almighty or not. Um, and so that's who he's identifying and giving praise to, basically, and saying he's having a conversation with in his life the active entity in his life. Verse four, and he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a, mo a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. So he's saying that sort of splendid, simple beauty is what God will be like um, in, um, in his summation, in his words of... Um, his kingdom and God active in his rulership. Verse 5, although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? So he's saying the things he's been blessed with are the things he's asked for and the part that he's given credit to God for. And even the everlasting covenant, the um, the um, sort of prophecy given to David um, at the start of, um, before even the start of his kingdom, at least according to narrative, that he'd have a lasting name. And in the Christian sense, that's the fact that uh, Jesus arises out of, out of the Hebrew sense, um, Solomon, who came after David and continued David's legacy after him, and then not to mention the um, Bible and the contribution and all of that, that um, that part of history played in our own uh, belief systems as far as Christianity goes. So in that sense, his legacy, that prophecy to him already came true, um, and he realizes it. Verse 6, but the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. So he's saying that he believes those who oppose him, sons of rebellion, his belief system, his God in uh, his form of worship um, don't have a chance. Verse seven, but the man who touches them shall be armed with iron and the, and the shaft of a spear 
and they shall be utterly, utterly burned with fire in their place. So he's saying, but the person who does there raise uh, up in opposition uh, by war, even with the shaft of the spear, uh, whoever dares do that is can look forward to bad things too, to reaching the flames also. Uh, again, a lot like the Psalms. Verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Okay, so before we go on with this verse, there's going to be some of those similar, I think, verses. I can, well, let's just take it a verse at a time. Verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Jesheb, Bashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the El Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. So now you see the glorification of taking human lives. Um, being codified right here in the Bible, the same document that says, thou shalt not kill. Yet you see killing in the sense of military uh, victories is sort of almost praised. Again, it's documented right here on in stone in the Bible. Verse 9, even though that's against what the same people are ordered not to do, yet the same God who's, according to David and his, these are his last words, they're being called his last words in this chapter. That's what David is doing. That's who he's attributing the victories, even in killing other people to, to God. Verse 9, uh, uh, one more thing about that, one more reason to keep the red letters of the Bible separate from everything else we're reading. They are different. Verse 9, and after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for, for battle. And the men of Israel had retreated. So the next person being um, mentioned in David's sort of eulogy in his will and his last words uh, is somebody named Dodo, who again is being uh, praised for his skill in battle, presumably again in taking lives. Um, and he's saying, and in being defiant to the governmental authority of the Philistines, because those are the people who were in that area before the uh, David and his predecessors and descendants, uh, to even to this day, uh, occupied and colonized that same area. Verse 10, there were people there, were people there before. Verse 10, he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. So he's saying they were victorious over the Philistines, even to the point that people in his uh, army were able to go and take plunder from the um, defeated. Verse 11, and after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. So here he's saying there was a point in the past where someone named Shammah um, is to be praised, is to be honored is to be recognized in his last moments. And again, it's for apparently being strategic now. He's saying there was a lentil field and um, the people had had to flee um, 
in battle from the Philistines. So how did that go? Verse 12, excuse me. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. So he's saying once again, the person to be praised is valiant in victory and in killing. And um, he's crediting God with the victories. And I'm again just saying God because that's our under that's my understanding of what he's talking about in his um, being thankful. Even though again, it's Lord in English. Uh, Jehovah in its um, native language in Hebrew. Verse 13. Then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adalam. And the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. So now David, apparently in his last words, is drawing a map of another time when apparently another confrontation happen um but it doesn't seem like it's being written in the first person look at um how verse 13 is written he's talking about himself in the third person um at, down at harvest time he came to david at the cave of adalam wouldn't he have just said and came to me so we know david didn't write this firsthand um neither did samuel because samuel is long gone last time we heard from him was from the dead in the seance. So David didn't write it. Samuel didn't write it. Somebody else's hand is active here in writing this. Um, whose? We don't know. That's whoever the narrator is for the book of Second Samuel. But that is something to keep in mind and one of the examples of something to be aware of throughout the Bible and why it's important to, as Christians, if you're going to do what Christ tells us to do, is one of the only places in the Bible where Jesus tells us what the will of God is to do. And that's to know concerning the doctrine. That means this Bible. That means the scriptures. That means anything you think of as religion. Anything coming at you as a Christian, um, representing itself as Christian, should easily be able to be tracked in the Bible since the things Jesus says is just a tithe of the Bible just six, in only six books of the 60 plus books so anything calling itself a Christian message should be full of those red letters and if it's not then it doesn't mean you have to reject it in fact that means you might want to glean something from it if you can you may want to run from it if you have to um, but it doesn't mean it, it means it's not gospel doesn't mean it's bad doesn't mean it's good, but it does mean it's not gospel. So that's the one thing to keep straight. Because you see, there's an active hand in the Bible and in the same way in modern times in mainstream media. That's not always so obvious, but it's very subtle. And it shows itself up in things like verse 13, how it shows you that even though it's named for Samuel, the book, it's talking about David, the king david um david and goliath david with those fantastical stories um both are gone both are already passed away and whoever is writing is unnamed so we don't know who it is that's saying writing these things that are being attributed to david we see that part of it is um tying the book of psalms to david and we see 
that wars that the people have fought. So a military um, aspect of the people is continued, a storyline, if you will, a narrative of the religious aspect of the people is continued, and the story of the person, people are tied up, tied up in a bow and calling into. But we know again, both are long gone. Samuel's long gone. David is long gone. But someone's keeping the story going. Verse 14, David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. So again, someone is writing about David. And maybe it's David himself that's um, dictating this to someone to write. And that's why it's showing up written this way. It's unclear. Um, it didn't say at any time that David commissioned a group of people to come to him and document his diary. Um, but, you know, some things aren't written. You have to read between the lines. Verse 15, and David said with longing, oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So according to the narrative, David is remembering a time when David, he himself, was um, facing the enemy and thirsty. Verse 16, so the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem, that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out on the ground. I'm sorry, sorry but poured it out to the Lord. So um, if you're to believe the narrative, David is writing all this about himself, um, even though, again, it's not written that way, um, about an incident when he was so thirsty for some water and three people came through for him, um, these sons of Zariah. Um, if I remember right, that's what they're called. Um, the um, but he's he's remembering a time when three people um, broke through to do something for him. I thought that it identified them specifically. Um, well, they're being called the mighty men here, but it, um, maybe that's just the label that's written over them at the different breaks in the narrative where we've read it before. But he's talking about three people who came through for him valiantly. Um, verse 17, and he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. So now he's saying the valiant thing that they did in hearing that the king was thirsty was go out and get him something to drink at the risk of their lives because it was wartime. But those three did that, is what he's saying. And when they brought the water back, rather than just say, thank you, and go ahead and sip it, instead he poured it out on the ground, just like you can see. Um, mostly that I've ever seen black people do it when someone dies, um, will pour their drink out on the ground to the person who passed away. In the movie, sometimes it'll be a 40 ounce, but You'll see the people, whoever they are, they're usually black, will pour out a drink to whoever um, passed away, oftentimes in gun violence, but not necessarily. Um, but you'll see that in movies. And that's what um, it reminds me of what we're reading about here. Um, what he's talking about is that people risk their lives. Those, these mighty men, specifically, just to get him some water, um, but he makes himself the hero and then retelling of the story and the fact that he did the moral thing 
of not just drinking it like he sees her, uh, even though they risked their lives to get it, but instead pouring it, pouring it out on the ground to them, to their effort, to the fact that they put their lives on the line to fill out, fulfill his whim. Verse 17, and he said, I'm sorry, we read that one already. Verse 18, now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. So he's saying Abishai um, is another person who's valiant, worth mentioning before he passes away. And he's also, again, valiant in war and even stands out among those three mighty men that he just mentioned before who risked their lives to get him some water. Verse 19, was he not the most honored of three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. So he's saying Abishai is now just as valiant as those first three he mentioned, but they didn't gain the rank that he didn't gain the rank that they did. So it would be like saying someone you know has the heart of a lion is just as um, fear, fearless, just as heroic in their daily walk or have come through in their lives for you in a sense that's just as heroic as someone in a uniform would, as a police officer would, as a Navy man, as an army woman might, just as valiant as they are, um, you know someone just with that same valiant heart. Is he's saying that person is um, is like that in his eyes? Abishai is like that in his eyes, just as valiant as those first three, but he didn't get the honors that they did. Verse twenty: Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed the lion in the midst of the pit on a snowy day. So now this next person, um, that again, this is being attributed to David, His um, presumably, since it's about him, though it's not written as if David wrote it himself, but someone, whoever it is, the narrator, the unnamed person, the scribe, is naming off the next person who is being honored at the time of David's death, Jehoiada. And he's apparently so... Um, powerful that he can even fight a lion. Now, if if he's saying lion figuratively um, to represent some other nation of people that maybe had lions on their um, their um, shields and such to represent them, or if he's talking about a literal lion in a pit, then um, that's an article of faith. But just like uh, the things we've read about David taking on a lion or um, anyone else taking on a lion and living to do it with their bare hands. Uh, but he's saying that, uh, at least if you're to believe the narrative, David is not giving a nod to uh, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, also for being just that valiant, um, uh, just like the first three. Verse 21, and he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with the staff, wrestling the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. So now again, the person being uh, recognized at the time of David's death is a killer, someone who killed someone being identified only as an Egyptian man, 
presumably that's so that you can uh, narrow down in your mind, or we can narrow down in our mind, the complexion of the person that he's fighting with. But we can't be too specific about that because the people we're reading about themselves are descendants of people who spent 400 years in Africa, which we already read about with the book of Exodus, if you want to look back on it and we went through it here on The Naked Truth, about how the people were then. So we can't assume anything about the complexion of anyone in the Bible, though you, the people in the Bible get whitewashed in pop culture um, ridiculously. Um, but in this case, we see the person he's wrestled um, with uh, and killed had a spear also. Um, but it, it's so it's, it's making it clear it was, I guess, uh, where there was something about the spear. Maybe it'll be explained out more in verse 12. No, I guess not. But it's, um, I thought that it was going to mention something about the size of the spear and the fact that he mentions a, spe a spectacular man. Let me see. It makes me think that maybe it's talking about people who are descendants of the giants. So I'm just going to look and see if maybe in the translation of um, of the words it becomes more clear, but it looks like it doesn't. It, it doesn't really go into any sort of deeper explanation um, in this sense. And as always, I'm using the bluelettervible.org website to read this with you. Um, yeah, it didn't really say anything more. I guess just it's just saying that there was also someone who was Egyptian that he battled with. And he's saying he was a spectacular man. I'm not sure what he means. Does he mean in physique? Does he mean in looks? Does, uh, presumably he means in battle, though, since he's saying he was also able to overtake him in battle. Verse 22, these things Benaiah, the, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name among three mighty men. So he's saying uh, another person who he recognizes as valiant is that Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. Verse 23, he was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three, and David appointed him over his guard. So this narrator is letting us know even this Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, he was, uh, uh, he was something else. He was a strong man, a man's man, all of that. Uh, but he's still not as uh, on level in his thinking, in his mind, as those first three that went unnamed. Verse 24, Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. So now uh, it's going into another list, it seems, of an army of people, 30 people, it's saying, that were also highly recognized uh, men. Now, this doesn't really read to me like something someone would write. Uh, I don't know. Uh, their last words before they're going to pass away, would they really go down a list like this and name off 30 people? Or would something like a religious order or organization do something like list off people to tie them to people mentioned in the, um, in the past through the different son ofs and son ofs and begats that we read through uh, previously. Either one is possible since we know Samuel didn't write this and David didn't write this. Because uh, one, Samuel's gone and David, two, David 
uh, isn't talking in the first person in the things he's writing here. He could have just as easily said, and these are the 30 men that I recognize and talk in the first person. Instead, it's talking in a, a, a different way, almost like someone who's just writing it down and including it with it. That's just my uh, opinion. We'll just keep reading because it's just going to name off a bunch of different names of people who he's tipping his hat to before he passes away. Verse 25, Shama the Herodite, Elitha the Herodite, okay, Herodite and the Herodite. Verse 26, Helez the Pelelite, I'm sorry, Paltitite or Paltite. Forgive me for mispronouncing any of these as always, please. Ira the son of Ekesh the Tekoite, Verse 27, Abiezer the Anathotite, Anathotite, uh, yeah, Anathoth, that's a place, okay, so Anathotite, uh, Mebune the Hushatite, verse 28, Zalman the Ahohite, Mahare the Natophatite, that's a pretty name, uh, Mahare that is, um, the Natophatite, so these are just different people being named off from different places that he's recognizing that are the group of 30 that are being named off here. And I'm just going to keep reading through them and just stop at things that names that stand out to me. He, uh, verse 29, Hileb, the son of Bana, the Netophathite, Ite, the son of Rebe, the Gibeah of Gib from Gibeah of the children of uh, Benjamin. I need a drink of water, excuse me. <laughs> So we'll read that one again. Verse 29, Heleb, the son of Baneah, I'm sorry, Bana, the Netophathite, Ite, the son of Rebe, from Gibeah of the children of Benjamin. So if that's the same Ite that we've read about previously, I don't think it is because I don't remember him being described that way. Um, that same son of that's being used here um, is the same thing of the Mac. MAC that you see for things like McDonald's, McDaniels. It's the same way of that society of people saying the son of. That's all that that Mac means. And the same one, um, it's the same way they're saying son of here. And it's because of patriarchy. It's linking the um, man back to the men that were pr um, um, prominent in his bloodline. Um, and it's the same way. Um, that son of is said in the Hebrew as Bar, the B-A-R, like um, Bar Jonah, like we read about in the Gospels. It just means son of. That's the same thing that's being said here and a lineage basically being laid out. Verse 30, Benea, uh, uh, not only that, but here it's actually just naming off the 30 people. Um, verse 30, Benea of Perothanite, Hide from the books of Gash, Abia Alban, the Arbathite, as, as I'm sorry, verse 31, Abi Alban, the Arbathite, Asmaveth, the Maramite, verse 32, El Eliaba, uh, the Shalbanite, of the sons of Joshan, Jonathan, there's an easier name to go with, um, Verse 33, Shama the Hararite, Ahiam the son of Sharar the Hararite, 
so just naming off some more names. 34, Elphilet, the son of Ahasbe, the son of the Maccathite, Eliam, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Kylonite. Eliam, I guess, is easy enough. Um, but just more names of the 30 that he's naming off here. Verse 35, Hezrei, the Carmelite, Parare, the Arbite, 36, Egal, the son of Nathan, of Zoba, Bani, the Gadite, verse 37, Zedek, the Ammonite, Nahare, the Beratite, Armavera of Joab, the son of Zariah. So now um, we've gotten to even some people who go by the scriptures are not even allowed to be among, counted among the congregation of the Israelites, the Ammonites. They're supposed to be uh, excluded from it, at least according to some of the, the previous scriptures we've read. Yet we know they're also relatives to the same people. We know they're even in the bloodline of Jesus. So again, make sense of it how best you can, but it absolutely contradicts some of the other things we've read thus far uh, in the Bible. But just something to keep in mind that that didn't keep them from being significant and honorably mentioned in David's narrative as it's drawing to an end here. Um, but we get, we've gotten to another name that's more familiar, Joab. We've read about him um, lately. He was David's army general, basically. Very faithful to him, to him, even though David wasn't always faithful, faithful to him in return. Verse 38, Ira the Ithrite, Ganeb the Ithrite. So, um, two more faithful people. Um, it really didn't even mention Joab specifically here. So, um, and it still hasn't told us who those three who were mentioned uh, originally were. Presumably, it's Joab is one of them. Abishai, I would think, would be one of them. But we already read Abishai. So, for sure, wouldn't he give Joab and the other sons of Zariah? As, he, as they're called, the, the honorable mention, if those were really, really his last words, since they were so faithful to him, maybe not. We saw recently where he said he has nothing to do with them and even demoted them, if you want to believe or were to believe that he wrote them, without even telling them that they were demoted by with the whole Amasa incident and caused them to be killed. And all he did was get the promotion. Um, but, you know, doesn't seem like these are the things that David wrote himself or even dictated out himself to me at all because they don't seem like the things a person who's on his way out would say without mentioning other things. But we do have one last chapter to go in this um, uh, book of Second Samuel. And we have one more verse. Verse 39, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Wow. So the one of the people who's counted among the 37 and all is Uriah the Hittite who uh, David put a hit out on and caused to be killed why would David be giving him an honorable nod when he, as some of his last words when he knows that he's the one who caused that person to be killed really doesn't seem like this is something David would have wrote it's 37 people though that if we're going to believe the narrative um, is David that David is uh saying, uh, so giving a salute to as his last will and testimony, testament, basically, um, of the honorable men he's known. 
here at the draw to the end of his life. Um, but it doesn't really read that way, especially considering how he did Uriah, his son Hittite, who he's saying thank you to. I took your wife from you is what he did and uh, had a kid with her, whether she was um, happy about it or not. Um, she was already married at the time. Um, so it doesn't really, it seems kind of shady, but it's hard to read. So that's why we read it. And I appreciate you reading along with me. That was the last verse. So we will end this reading. Thank you for joining me for the Naked Truth. Hope it's a blessing for you. And I hope that you'll join me again. Love you. God bless you. See you next time. Peace be with you.